0: Hi, this is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why Cheap Astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 45, Built for Purpose. You're probably familiar with the USS Enterprise, which was designed to fly through deep space and sometimes go into a standard orbit, so that the crew can beam down or take a shuttlecraft. Although in some recent Star Trek remake movies, we've not only seen the Enterprise fly through atmosphere, but even go underwater, which isn't really canon. But anyway, the theme of this Dear Cheap Astronomy episode is to talk about how spacecraft and space technology are nearly always built for very specific purposes. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, If things don't go according to plan with the James Webb Space Telescope, could we fix it? So here we imagine the James Webb launches in 2018, gets to its destination, but maybe its reverse origami unfolding process doesn't work, or... And here we'd really like to think this couldn't possibly happen again. It turns out that the mirror geometry is wrong. Well, it's already cost $8 billion, and a lot of NASA and national pride is at stake. So at that point, it is likely that people would start asking whether we shouldn't go out and fix it, like we did with the Hubble Space Telescope. So there are two issues here. One is whether we could actually fly astronauts out there to do the job, and two, whether it can actually be repaired. A quick answer to that second point is no, which leaves the first point somewhat moot. The Hubble Space Telescope was designed from scratch with the intention that it would be serviced several times over its life. It's full of detachable panels to enable access to its innards, and most of its innards are modular in nature to allow things to be swapped in and out. The Hubble Space Telescope is beyond servicing right now because we've lost the space shuttle. But for now, the telescope is performing just fine, and its orbit will not begin to substantially decay until well into the 2020s. So it's not out of the question that we may yet launch something robotic which can dock with Hubble and then lift it up to a higher orbit, which will then give us more breathing space to think about how we could service it again with an astronaut crew at some point in the future. But anyway, the James Webb is a whole different story. It's an infrared telescope built to take advantage of the Earth-Sun Lagrange Point 2, where it can be in a solar orbit so it can permanently face away from the Sun, but by remaining around L2, it can also stay in close proximity to the Earth. The whole James Webb mission concept was to create a space telescope that could be folded up into the nose cone of a rocket, and then launched to L2, 1.5 million kilometres from Earth, along with enough fuel to allow it to maintain a halo orbit around L2 for about 10 years. So as soon as we start adding modifications to make it serviceable, that's going to make it harder to fold up, and it would also make it a lot heavier. So it would need more fuel, which means the launch rocket would need more fuel, and so on, and so forth. All these kind of parameters are calculated and balanced, way back when a space mission is still on the drawing board. So from the get-go the Hubble was always meant to be serviceable and from the get-go the James Webb was never meant to be serviceable. So if it turns out the James Webb doesn't work after it arrives at L2 that will probably be that. At this point in our technological history it would actually be cheaper and quicker to build a new James Webb Space Telescope from scratch, rather than trying to fast-track a piloted rescue mission. But of course, if the James Webb does work, and it very likely will, after it's been delivering great science for 10 years, and we realise it's running low on fuel, and that the end is nigh, then we might start exploring some options it was decided fairly late in the game to give the James Webb a docking ring. The docking ring is described as a just-in-case contingency, which means it's there just in case someone can think of something useful to do with it. Given James Webb's servicing limitations, probably the only thing worth considering is refuelling, which might keep it going a bit longer until something substantial breaks down. Any docking procedure poses a significant risk to the telescope, so we'd only consider a refuelling attempt at the very end of the telescope's functional life, and even then it's not like the James Webb has a fuel cap you can unscrew. So maybe we'll figure out a way to do it, but it would be risky and very expensive, because of course the James Webb really was never meant to be serviced. That was the plan, not an oversight. And thanks me. So if you want a really versatile spacecraft, you'll need to build it to be versatile, which means it'll be more expensive, take longer to build, and probably be a lot more mass to lift off Earth. But that's not to say you can't do it. Dear Cheap Astronomy, So what do you think of the BFR? SpaceX's BFR may have started life as the Big Falcon rocket until people realised the F could stand for so much more. But, despite the name, the BFR isn't actually all that big size-wise. As a fully stacked launch vehicle, the Saturn V was 111 metres tall, while the planned BFR stack will be 106 metres tall. And although the BFR is always depicted with lots of windows, as though all the passengers will get a view from their master bedroom, the diameter of the BFR is actually only 9 metres, while the diameter of the Saturn V was 10 metres Admittedly, that is the diameter of the unmanned first stage of the Saturn V. The width of the command module that housed the crew was less than 4 metres in diameter. So, OK, the BFR has a wider average diameter, but it's still just 9 metres. Of course, though, it's not all about size. What really matters in the rocket business is payload. That is, how much mass a rocket can get into space. The Saturn V could launch a payload of 100 metric tonnes, although that was the whole Apollo spacecraft, fully fueled and ready to go to the Moon, along with its various modules, including the Lunar Module. The return mass of the Apollo Command Module and its three astronauts was just 13 metric tonnes. The payload of the BFR is claimed to be about 150 metric tonnes, although that is essentially the whole second stage of the BFR, which encompasses crew and cargo compartments, as well as its own fuel tank and its own set of rockets. Its return payload, in terms of crew and cargo, will be 50 metric tonnes, which will be soft-landed when its rockets retro-burned the last bit of fuel still aboard. So, comparisons between the BFR and the Saturn V Apollo solution are complex. The Saturn V Apollo solution got three astronauts to the moon, two of them landed and took off again, and then all three astronauts returned safely to the Earth. The BFR can launch its much larger spaceship into Earth orbit, But about all the Spaceship can do from there is land back down on the surface again. To do anything more interesting, it needs to be refuelled. To make that possible, there are actually two BFR configurations. One is the Spaceship atop the Launch Booster. The other is a Tanker atop the Launch Booster. The Tanker is pretty much just a fuel tank but with enough infrastructure smarts to enable the BFR spaceship to dock with it in orbit and refuel. The spaceship is then ready to go to the Moon, or to Mars, or whatever. And it's that refueling step that changes the whole ballgame. The completely self-contained Saturn V assembly, fully fueled and with Apollo modules and astronauts aboard, was 2,950 metric tonnes on the launch pad. The BFR spaceship assembly, fully fueled on the launch pad, would be 8,650 metric tonnes, including a proposed 100 passengers who would make up less than 10 metric tonnes of that total mass. So really, that's why it's called the Big Rocket. And that's why its launch booster needs 31 engines. It might not be big in size, but it's big in terms of launch mass that's not just fuel. It's important to appreciate that the primary purpose of a rocket is to launch a load of rocket fuel off the ground, which is then steadily burnt up so as to get a very small proportion of the rocket's launch mass into orbit and beyond. The BFR concept, with its tanker-mediated refuelling step, messes with the fundamental math of rockets. The BFR spaceship configuration launches a very heavy and pretty useless fuel-expended spacecraft into orbit, but then the refuelling step makes that spaceship useful again. This is certainly not an original idea, but making that idea a reality really would be a big f-ing deal. That this plan will not only become a reality in the near future, but also get us to Mars by 2024, means SpaceX has some work ahead of it, not only to deliver the hardware, but also to convince everyone it can deliver on its promise. And thanks me. Of course, we said all that before the Falcon Heavy launch in February 2018, which left us all thinking, well, what can't SpaceX do? And here we'd probably say they can't get people to Mars by 2024. I mean, that is just six years away. If we get someone back on the Moon by then, that'd be pretty good. It's always the case with these things. You don't just need a rocket, you need a program. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to go with a, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and let us do the for you? Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.